Well, we recently did a three-part sermon series on the book of Leviticus, and one of the things that we saw in the book of Leviticus was the significance of the role of the high priest. The book of Leviticus is foreign to us as we live in a different culture, in a different time. We live under different circumstances. We who are Christians are part of a new and better covenant. And so when we study Leviticus, it is foreign to us. And we have to do a little bit of work in order to understand the significance of Leviticus for us and the meaning for us. But it's worth it. It is certainly worth it. And I hope that is one of the takeaways from our study of Leviticus is that Leviticus is deep and it's rich and it's encouraging and it's edifying for Christians today. What we saw in the book of Leviticus is that after the Lord rescued his people, the people of Israel, out of bondage, out of slavery in Egypt, he brought them through the wilderness to Mount Sinai. And it was at Mount Sinai that the Lord entered into a covenant relationship with his people. He made promises to them, good promises. He called upon them to be his people, to be faithful to him, to worship him, to worship him alone. And he promised to be good to them. He promised to dwell among them. He promised to bless them. He promised to protect them from their enemies and to give them a good land that they could call their own. But there was a problem. There was a problem with all of this. The problem was that the people of Israel were sinful people. And God is a holy God who can tolerate no sin. We saw this right from the beginning in Genesis. When Adam and Eve dwelled in the Garden of Eden the place of God's presence, they were living the good life. They were enjoying all the blessings that come with dwelling with God, having fellowship with him until they sinned. And when they sinned, they were removed. They were kicked out of the Garden of Eden. They were kicked out of the special place of God's dwelling. And so we see right from the beginning of Scripture that our sin is a problem and it separates us from the presence of God which is the realm of life and causes us to live in the realm of death. And so God was calling his people, rescuing his people, entering into a promised relationship with his people, but there was this problem that needed to be resolved, namely their sin. And so what we saw in the book of Leviticus is that God provided the way for his people to enjoy his presence in their midst as he dwelt among them. The book of Leviticus, far from being a burdensome book of rules and regulations, was the glorious path for God's people to enjoy living with God. What we see at the end of Exodus and in Leviticus is that God called them to build a tabernacle in their midst. And that was the special place of God's dwelling. And the tabernacle was to sit right in the middle of their encampment with all the tribes camped around the tabernacle, demonstrating that God was right there in the center among his people. And this tabernacle was the place of worship. And there were different parts of the tabernacle. There was the outer courtyard. There was the holy place. And then in the, in the middle was the most holy place, the hot spot of God's presence, if you will. What we saw is that the Lord provided priests who would minister on behalf of the people and offer sacrifices 
for the people to make atonement for their sin so that they could enjoy God's presence among them. For the people of Israel to draw near to the Lord and enjoy his presence among them, God provided them with priests to mediate on their behalf by offering sacrifices to atone for their sins. The priests came from the tribe of Levi. The entire tribe of Levi was set apart for special service to the Lord, but not all Levites were priests. A subset of the tribe of Levi, the descendants of Aaron, served as priests. But there was one priest who was unique among all the priests. The most important office in Israel was that of the high priest. In Leviticus chapter 16, we saw that only the high priest was able to enter the holiest part of the tabernacle, or later the temple, to offer sacrifices, and he was only able to do that once a year on the Day of Atonement. Well, we are continuing our sermon series going through the book of Hebrews, and our passage today is Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, through chapter 5, verse 10. And what we have seen is that the book of Hebrews was originally a letter written in the first century by an author whom we do not know to a group of Jewish Christians who were facing hostility and trials because of their faith in Christ and who may have been tempted to return to their Jewish way of life under the old covenant. And so the author of Hebrews writes this letter to exhort the recipients of the letter to remain steadfast in their faith in Christ, to endure trials and persecution, to not go back to their old way of life. And in our passage today, the author makes a bold claim about Jesus that would have ruffled some feathers among the Jewish religious leaders in the first century. I'm going to read Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 through chapter 5, verse 10. I encourage you to follow along. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications 
with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Back in chapters 1 and 2, the author of Hebrews began this letter by arguing that Jesus is superior to angels. In chapters 3 and 4, he argued that Jesus is superior to Moses and Joshua, who were key figures in the Old Testament. And here in chapter 4, verse 14, he begins an extended argument, which goes through chapter 10, verse 18, aiming to persuade his readers that the priesthood of Jesus is superior to the Levitical priesthood. The author of Hebrews introduced the idea of Jesus as a high priest back in chapter 2, verse 17, where he said that Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For a high priest to represent the people, he had to come from among the people. In order for Jesus then to serve as our high priest, he had to come from among us. And that is why he came to earth and took on flesh. That is why he added to himself a human nature. Jesus has always ex ex existed as the divine son of God. But when he came to earth as a baby born in Bethlehem, he added to himself a human nature so that he could become like us in every respect. And thus he can represent us as our high priest to make propitiation for our sins. Referring to Jesus as a high priest was a bold claim for a Jewish person to make in the first century. But the author of Hebrews not only claimed that Jesus was a high priest, he said that Jesus is our great high priest. In other words, he was saying that any other high priest is inferior to Jesus. Anyone who was serving at that time in Jerusalem, at the temple, who claimed to be a high priest, was no high priest compared to Jesus. In our passage today, we see three ways Jesus is a superior high priest, why it matters, and how we are to respond. I know what some of you are thinking. This sounds like another one of Mike's long sermons. But don't worry, I assure you, there are worse things in life than long sermons. <laughs> so the first thing we'll consider is the three reasons Jesus is a superior high priest. First, Jesus is a great high priest who passed through the heavens. In the book of Exodus, as I mentioned before, Moses was commanded to construct a tabernacle that would be assembled in the middle of the Israelite camp. And as I said, this tabernacle which later became the temple, served as the special dwelling place of God. And within that 
tabernacle within that temple was the innermost place called the Holy of Holies. And it was a beautiful design. It was a wonderful, visible representation of God's dwelling for the people of Israel. It was a good thing. And what we will see later in our sermon series in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5, is that the tabernacle was only a lesser copy and shadow of the heavenly pattern that was shown to Moses at Mount Sinai. The tabernacle and later the uh, temple, uh, as beautiful as it was and as glorious as it was, was just but a taste Just a a little picture, a, a glimpse, if you will, of the heavenly reality, the heavenly dwelling place of God. The priests under the old covenant offered sacrifices in what was only a copy of the real deal. Jesus offered his sacrifice, not in a man made structure, once a year, but in the beautiful, glorious, awesome, heavenly sanctuary for all eternity. When he described Jesus passing through the heavens, he used spatial language, but he was pointing to something greater than a spatial journey, such as an astronaut passing through the outer atmosphere. No, by passing through the heavens, Jesus transcended all the limitations of time and space and entered the special dwelling place of God. Jesus transcended it all. Again, the high priests, once a year, got to offer a sacrifice to make atonement in a copy, a shadow, in the tabernacle or temple. But Jesus offered his sacrifice in the heavenly places, in the heavenly realm of God. Secondly, Jesus is a superior high priest to all other high priests because he was tempted but did not sin. One of the things we saw in Leviticus 16 is that on the day of atonement, Aaron, who was the first high priest from the tribe of Levi, had to offer sacrifices for his own sins. He had to make atonement for his own sins before making atonement for the sins of the people. He had to make atonement for his own sins so that he did not pollute the tabernacle and die. He had to make atonement for himself as well as for the people. Similarly, all the high priests who came after Aaron were all sinners who had to make atonement for their own sins so that they did not pollute the tabernacle and die. In one sense, this was a good thing. It was a good thing in the sense that the high priest could deal gently with the other people within Israel. They could relate with them. They could identify with them. They could say, oh, you have to, you have to offer a sacrifice for your sin. I get it. I've been struggling lately. Last week, I had to offer three goats myself. They could deal gently. They could relate. They could understand. But what is better than a high priest who deals gently with you because of his sin? What's far better is a high priest who deals gently with you and sympathizes with you, but was without sin, even though he was tempted in every way. That is Jesus. 
both the fact that he was tempted and the fact that he did not sin are important for us. The fact that he was tempted means he understands what we experience when we are tempted. When we are struggling with temptation, he is not cold, distant, or indifferent. He can relate to us. He knows our frailties. He knows our weaknesses. He is sympathetic. And his willingness to endure temptation is good news for us. He was tempted, yet did not sin. The fact that he was without sin means he succeeded where we all have failed. He was victorious over sin. The high priests of old had sympathy, but no power to overcome sin. But Jesus resisted and defeated sin for us. Jesus is the perfect combination of power and sympathy. He sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. He relates to us. He identifies with us. He deals gently with us. Yet he has power to help us. Moreover, because he was without sin, he offered himself as the perfect sacrifice for our sins. Christ's sinlessness is essential to understanding Jesus and his work on our behalf. And it wasn't just the author of Hebrews and the followers of Jesus who saw that Jesus was different in that he did not sin. Pilate's wife told her husband, have nothing to do with that just man. Pilate said, I find no fault in him. The thief on the cross next to Jesus said, the man, this man has done nothing wrong. The centurion at the foot of the cross said, certainly this was a righteous man. Even the demons recognized that Jesus was the Holy One of God. In other words, the sinlessness of Jesus was evident to everyone who encountered him and was testified to by many people, both followers, enemies, and people who might have been indifferent. And the significance of his sinlessness cannot be overstated. Nick Batzig writes, In a life that spanned three decades, our Lord never entertained a thought, never uttered a word, and never carried out an action that was defiled by impure motives. He always honored his Father in heaven, always honored his earthly father and mother, never lusted, never uttered a word in sinful anger, never gossiped about or slandered his neighbor. He never stole, never lied, and never coveted. In short, he submitted to every commandment of the law of God without wavering. He loved the Lord with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he loved his neighbor as himself. The scriptures bear manifold witness to this truth, and it is one of the most profitable truths upon which we ought to meditate. We ought to meditate on the sinlessness of Christ. He never sinned and always perfectly obeyed God. He fulfilled all the righteous requirements of the law for us. 
There is no one like Jesus. The third reason that Jesus is a superior high priest is that as God's son, he was after the order of Melchizedek. What does that mean? Well, Israel was made up of 12 tribes. Each tribe descended from one of Jacob's 12 sons, which we read about in the book of Genesis. The priests under the old covenant came from the tribe of Levi, which is why the priesthood is referred to as the Levitical priesthood. And the high priests were appointed. In other words, a guy in Israel could not simply raise his hand and volunteer to be the high priest. They did not pass around high priest sign-up sheets. You had to be appointed. You had to be chosen. You could not self-select to be the high priest. The high priests only had the honor of serving when appointed. No one had the authority to mediate and offer sacrifices on behalf of God's people except for the person who was chosen to do so. And as the high priests under the old covenant were appointed, so too Christ was appointed by God. Christ alone has the authority to serve as our great high priest. Describing God's appointment of Christ, the author of Hebrews quoted from Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, which says, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. He also quoted from Psalm 110, verse 4, which says, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We will learn more about Melchizedek as we make our way through Hebrews, but I'll say a few things for now. Jesus was not a descendant of Levi, meaning he was not from the tribe from which the high priests were chosen. He was a descendant of Judah. So how could he possibly serve as a high priest? Well, the author of Hebrews reveals that Jesus is not a Levitical priest, but a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Whereas the Levitical priests served for a time and their time was limited by the fact that they died, Jesus was designated a priest forever, not as a Levitical priest, but after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek is an intriguing character in Scripture, to say the least. He first appears in Genesis chapter 14, verses 18 through 20, and he appears suddenly and seemingly out of nowhere. In Genesis chapter 14, Abraham went on a rescue mission to save his nephew Lot, who had been taken captive by rival kings. So Abraham took 318 of his trained men and defeated the enemy and rescued Lot. Listen to what happened on his way back. After his return from the defeat of Shador Lamor and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram, by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And then he vanishes. 
The only other time he is mentioned in the Old Testament is in the passage from Psalm 110, verse 4, which the author of Hebrews quoted in relation to Jesus. We don't know a whole lot about Melchizedek, but we do know that he was a priest of God Most High, and he appeared long before the Levitical priesthood was established, even long before Levi was born. The point here in Hebrews 5, then, is that Jesus is a high priest in the order of Melchizedek, and therefore his priesthood precedes and supersedes the Levitical priesthood. The high priest under the Old Covenant was the most important office in Israel. In our passage today, we begin to see how Jesus, our great high priest, is far superior to any other high priest. He alone has the authority to serve as our great high priest. You don't need any other priest to mediate on your behalf. You don't need any other priest to go before God on your behalf. We have the only high priest we will ever need. Jesus alone is our high priest. He alone mediates on our behalf before God for all of eternity. So why does it matter? In verse 7, we read that during his ministry on earth, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. In other words, Jesus experienced pain and agony, sorrow and tears. He learned obedience through what he suffered. The culmination of this was the Garden of Gethsemane, his trial, his torture, and his execution. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed desperately, so much so that he sweat drops of blood. He prayed with great agony and sorrow as he faced his death on the cross, which was not only excruciatingly painful, but is also the place where he would experience the wrath of God being poured out for the sins of God's people. After being made perfect, meaning he completed the work necessary to be our great high priest, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. He did not become perfect in the sense that he was imperfect morally. It's not as though he was a sinner who was made perfect. When it talks about Jesus being made perfect, it talks about him completing the path that the Lord laid out for him. He had a path that he needed to walk. He had a task that he needed to complete in order to be our high priest. And it was when he completed that path, it was when he finished that work, that he could faithfully serve as our high priest for all of eternity in the heavenly places. Whether we know it or not, whether we appreciate it or not, 
we need a high priest. Our sins put us at enmity with God and keep us from enjoying his presence in the realm of life, in the realm of light, in the realm of blessing. We will either live in the realm of death, which we deserve, or in the realm of life, enjoying fellowship and peace with God. Those are the two options. We cannot fix our sin problem. We cannot atone for our sins. We cannot work our way into the realm of life. We need a high priest who can mediate for us, who can grant us access to God's sweet and glorious presence. We need someone who can mediate on our behalf. We need someone who can represent us for, before God. We need someone who can offer the sacrifice that will make atonement for all our sins, not in a man-made building, but in the heavenly places, the place of God's dwelling. If we do not have such a high priest, then we will be consigned to the realm of death for all eternity. The author of Hebrews expounds on the glory of Jesus as our great high priest to encourage and remind us that he is the source of eternal salvation. The salvation he gives us is eternal. If you are in Christ, the salvation he has accomplished for you will lead to never-ending joy in his presence. The original recipients of the letter of Hebrews faced trials, hardship, and persecution. We too face these things. Sometimes the darkness feels overwhelming. Sometimes the pain feels unbearable. Sometimes the opposition feels relentless. Sometimes the anxiety feels never-ending. Sometimes the disappointment feels crushing. But we take heart because we have a great high priest who is the source of eternal salvation. One day we will look back and realize that all our troubles in this life were but light and momentary afflictions in light of our eternal salvation. He is the source of eternal salvation because God has appointed him. He was tempted and did not sin. And he passed through the heavens where he offers his perfect sacrifice and serves as our great high priest for all of eternity. Philip Hughes writes, What we needed was not a fellow loser, but a winner. Not one who shares our defeat but one who is able to lead us to victory. Not a sinner, but a savior. Praise God that he has given us Jesus Christ, our great high priest, who has won victory for us over sin and death. What a savior. Finally, how do we respond? 
First, we hold fast our confession. Confession does not merely refer to confessing sin, as important as that is. Our confession is what we confess to believe. As Christians, we confess that we believe in Jesus and his gospel. In Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, we read, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Holding fast to our confession means we hold fast to Jesus. We hold fast to the real historical Jesus. We hold fast to Jesus who was born of the Virgin Mary in Bethlehem, who lived a sinless life while he was on this earth, who performed many signs, wonders, and miracles demonstrating that he is who he says he is, who taught extensively about the kingdom of God, who was arrested, who was tortured, and who was put to death outside of Jerusalem on a Roman cross to take the punishment for our sin, who was then buried in a tomb belonging to a man named Joseph, who on the third day rose bodily from the grave and then appeared to hundreds of people over the course of 40 days before he ascended into heaven where he is now seated at the right hand of the Father. This is the Jesus whom we hold fast to, not a Jesus of our own making. We hold fast to the real historical Jesus. Jesus is who he says he is, and he has proven that beyond any shadow of a doubt, and God has vindicated him through his resurrection. We do not make Jesus in our own image. We believe in the real, true Jesus Christ. We hold fast to him. And we hold fast to the truth of the gospel. The gospel is the good news that God saves sinners in Jesus Christ. The gospel is that God, the creator of everyone and everything, is holy. And we are made in his image to know him, to love him, to enjoy him, to glorify him. But we have all sinned against him and therefore we deserve judgment. But God in his mercy has provided a way for us to escape the judgment we deserve by sending Jesus Christ into the world as the Savior of the world. So now everyone who repents of their sins and believes in Jesus Christ will be saved. Everyone who believes in Christ will receive the forgiveness of their sins and the gift of eternal life and will enjoy living with God in the realm of life for all of eternity. This is the gospel these are not optional beliefs. We must hold fast to our confession. Jesus cares about what we believe and what we confess. If you are not a Christian, our greatest hope, desire, and prayer for you is that you will believe in Jesus. 
We are glad you're here. You are always welcome here. And we hope that you will come to know and believe in Jesus Christ and experience the salvation that can only be found in him. If you're not a Christian, believe in Jesus and be saved. Eternal life is found in him and only in him. Just like us, you need a high priest. And God has provided Jesus as our great high priest. And he has offered the sacrifice to pay the penalty for our sins once and for all. Believe and be saved. We need a high priest. God has given Jesus and Jesus alone the authority to act on our behalf as our high priest. There is no salvation apart from him. Therefore, we must hold fast to our confession. We cannot have a ho-hum, take-it-or-leave-it type attitude toward what we believe. No, we must hold fast to what we believe. We must hold fast our confession. Secondly, we draw near to the throne of grace with confidence. We, who are sinners, are encouraged to draw near to God with confidence. And this is amazing. We are encouraged to draw near to God, the Holy One, with confidence. But we are not encouraged to draw near with confidence in ourselves. We draw near with confidence in Christ. When it says draw near with confidence, it means have confidence that Jesus is who he says he is, and he has granted you access because of his finished work on your behalf. We draw near with confidence because we are in Jesus Christ. God wants us to draw near to him. And what do we receive when we draw near? We receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You see, Jesus is not only the source of our eternal salvation, he is also the one who helps us here and now. Brothers and sisters, when we neglect to draw near to the throne of grace, we do so to our own detriment. He is delighted to help us. He is delighted to show us mercy and grace. He is delighted to come alongside of us to give us all that we need. What do we receive? Well, first we receive the forgiveness of all our sins. In Jesus Christ, we receive forgiveness for all our sins, past, present, and future. What a comfort that is. There is therefore now no condemnation for anyone who is in Jesus Christ. When we draw near, we receive the comfort that all of our sins have been forgiven. But not only that, God wants us to resist temptation and live godly lives. And he has given us a high priest who defeated and helps us with our fight against sin. He wants us to fight sin and resist temptation. And he has given us a high priest who has not failed as we have failed, but who has succeeded 
and gives us his power in the fight against temptation. Brothers and sisters, he wants you to resist temptation. In 1 Corinthians 10, 13, we read, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Yes, we are sinners. Yes, we have fallen short. Yes, he has forgiven all our sins, past, present, and future. Even so, he wants us to fight sin. He wants us to resist temptation. And Jesus gives us his power, his help to do so. We cannot fight it on our own. We will fail in our own strength. But he gives us his help to fight, to resist, to flee temptation. He also gives us help when we are discouraged because he himself experienced discouraging circumstances. He saw the people of his hometown reject him. He saw his disciples fail to understand his message time and time again. He saw those closest to him abandon and deny him in his darkest hour. He has experienced discouraging circumstances. So when you are discouraged, he is there to help. He is there to help when you are being mistreated. When someone is mistreating you, treating you unfairly, unjustly, he knows. He knows that experience because he has been treated unfairly. He has been treated unjustly. Therefore, when you are experiencing that pain, he comes alongside you to help you. He helps you when you suffer. He helps you when you fall. He helps you in any and all circumstances. Therefore, draw near to the throne of grace to receive help in time of need. We need a high priest. Jesus is our great high priest and the only high priest we need. Brothers and sisters, let us hold fast to our confession. Let us hold fast to Jesus and the glorious truth of the gospel. And let us be those who draw near with confidence in Jesus Christ, the throne of grace, to receive all the help we need. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for the gift of Jesus, our great high priest, the only priest we need. We thank you that Jesus was made like us in every respect so that he can represent us as our high priest. We thank you that Jesus offered his perfect sinless life as a sacrifice to make atonement for all our sins, past, present, and future. And we thank you that he offers his sacrifice in the heavenly places for all of eternity. We pray that we will hold fast to the truth of the gospel. We pray that we will hold fast to Jesus. And we pray that we will continue to draw near to you to receive all the help we need. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.